0: And for some years, we had been sending these spy planes called the U-2 from Pakistan and from Turkey across the Soviet Union at altitudes that uh, where they couldn't be shot down, observing what was going on in the movement of Soviet uh, armies and so on. And... Uh, um, it was proposed to Ike that before you go to try to make a deal with Khrushchev in Paris, knock off these things. You don't want to be flying over uh, Russia at that time and you placing this summit meeting in jeopardy. But he personally approved uh, these the last uh, flights of the U-2 over the Soviet Union. And uh, uh, of course, uh, uh, one of them was shot down, and shot down on May Day, the great Soviet uh, uh, annual uh, celebration, and that broke up the uh, broke up the summit meeting. And uh, I went to Paris at that time when uh, Khrushchev uh, mocked him particularly because Ike hadn't told the truth about the U-2s. And I've never seen Ike so in such despair. Indeed, at that time, he actually talked about resigning the presidency because he felt uh, that he had made a terrible blunder and had embarrassed the country.
1: That was James Reston, the former Washington bureau chief for The New York Times and known to his friends as Scotty describing one of the signature events of the Cold War. On May 1, 1960, Central Intelligence Agency pilot Francis Gary Powers was conducting a surveillance overflight of the Soviet Union, intended to estimate the extent of Russian ballistic missile strength. Struck by a surface-to-air missile, the plane crashed, almost intact, and Powers was taken prisoner. As Reston describes it in this clip, The incident had numerous unwanted and embarrassing consequences for the United States and for the CIA. American protests that the plane was doing weather reconnaissance were revealed as lies over the next 10 days. Valuable technical intelligence and a CIA operative had been delivered into the hands of a Cold War enemy. A four-power summit that included President Dwight D. Eisenhower and Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev was fatally undermined. And in the face of a surging presidential campaign by Democratic Senator John F. Kennedy, the Eisenhower administration, along with Republican candidate Richard M. Nixon, appeared to be in disarray. The U2 spying program was a shock to Americans when it became headline news, but it wasn't a surprise to Scotty Reston or to his colleagues in Washington's foreign policy journalism establishment. Newsmen, and they were nearly always men, in Washington, D.C. knew a great many things that didn't go into the newspaper, things that government officials trusted them to keep secret in exchange for privileged access. This access was a system based on off-the-record background meetings that occurred in private spaces, such as the National Press Building, the Gridiron Club, the Metropolitan Club, the Overseas Writers Association, and countless smokers, banquets, and dinner parties, hosted by Washington's political and journalism elites. These spaces were white and they were male, and many of their occupants had formed intimate friendships during World War II. Men admitted to these spaces, whether alumni of Harvard or alumni of the Des Moines Register, could be confident that they were, to quote Lin-Manuel Miranda, in the room where it happens. In spaces that would actively exclude women and black journalists until the 1970s, writers and policymakers mingled, sharing information, trading advice, talking through the international dilemmas of an increasingly hot, cold war. And it was there that a man like Scotty Reston would have learned the details of the U-2 overflights, their risks and potential rewards, years before Francis Gary Powers pulled the ripcord on his parachute over Sverdlovsk. In fact, Scotty Reston casually hints at these connections if you pay close attention to words and phrases that suggest his own proximity to these events. It was proposed to Ike, he says ambiguously, about the possibility of ending the flights before the summit, never saying who made the proposal. Reston speaks of going to the fractured Paris summit and conveys an intimate, first-person observation of a distraught president. I'd never seen Ike in such despair, he recalls. Today, conservative critics condemn the so-called liberal media for being in cahoots with policymakers and politicians. But there was a time when that was a formal, accepted way of doing business. In her new book, City of Newsmen, Public Lies and Professional Secrets in Cold War Washington, University of Wisconsin historian Catherine Magar takes us into that world, one in which journalists agreed, as Magar explains in today's episode, to publish government lies, but not lie for the government. To work to prevent World War III by serving as informal advisors to the powerful, and in return, filtering news to the public to keep the United States safe from Nuclear Holocaust. Join Catherine and me for this episode of Why Now, where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, a professor of history at the New School for Social Research, co-executive editor of Public Seminar, and the author of The Political Junkie Substack. This is episode 12, all the news that's fit to print. (music) Catherine McGar, thanks for being on our show.
2: Thanks so much for having me here.
1: So, your new book is about whether the press is trustworthy. Why did you decide to write a book about the press?
2: I initially had gone to journalism school, and my first internship was at Politico when it was a pretty new new news organization, and I was running around the Hill. Um, And I was not enjoying myself, um, and I thought, this reporting thing is not for me. And I think without realizing that I had it at the back of my head then when I went on to get a PhD in history, I think I've been always trying to figure out what I didn't like about political reporting, even though that's not necessarily what I knew I was doing. And then I've just been very interested in the New York Times because we do consider it a paper of record um and sometimes historians rely on it um to give us that first draft of history and the New York Public Library um you know has the New York Times's internal papers now available to anyone um to be able to look at and so i started in those papers um Scotty Rustin's name came up a lot who was the Washington DC bureau chief for the New York Times for many years and a diplomatic reporter and one of the characters in my book um and so then i followed him to his archives and in Illinois and I saw more names there and I just sort of traveled around to to recreate this this network of of reporters in the 1940s and 1950s.
1: And the book actually starts even before the 1940s, right? I mean, you start before World War II and what is it about how journalists are relating to the foreign policy establishment in the 1930s that then propels them into the Cold War as a kind of partner to the federal government. So they
2: actually did not get along well um, for most of the 1930s. And especially then in World War II, there was a lot of friction between reporters and the government. And so there's this idea that maybe they were working hand in glove this whole time, but they weren't. There was, there was a lot of tension um, behind the scenes, reporters constantly trying to get more information, especially out of the State Department, the State Department often not really having its act together. And so I really see this group of reporters driving some of the information policy that's going to come out in in the Cold War.
1: So tell us what that information policy during the Cold War was. Something that started
2: during World War II was the background system of information. And I found that to be very important during the Cold War. And that meant that uh, public officials would give certain information either off the record or not to be quoted or not to be traced back to them, you know, for background, which, which still exists. They would have these dinners to sort of give reporters the real story, kind of the story behind the story. And these dinners were not open to just anyone, um, these dinners were only open to whomever the other reporters trusted. And so it ended up being a very small circle of these trustworthy, politically fairly moderate, always white, always men who would um, participate in these sessions and these off the record and background sessions, get the real story or what they saw as the real story, which to them seemed like, okay, the Cold War is not really about anti-communism. And that's just the line that the government is feeding to the American people and we'll kind of go along with that because we know what the real goal is. And the real goal is to you know, save Western Europe, help them repair from World War II, and help prevent World War III. So there ends up being this situation where there's sort of one story being told within Washington and then a separate outward facing story that's the one we're more familiar with, which is anti-communism is driving the Cold War, which as far as I can tell, none of my guys really believe.
1: As you characterize them, they're liberal internationalists. Can you tell our listeners what you mean by liberal internationalist? What I mean is that they feel
2: the United States has a role to play in the world. And yes, they would like that to be uh, a role where we're supporting democracies abroad. But honestly, their liberal internationalism was was really focused on keeping the Atlantic Alliance strong. And for them, that means um, making sure that France and Great Britain, as I said, rebuild for more. Um, but then also to sort of remain our allies. And this was tricky at the time because um, those were you know two of the biggest colonial powers. The United States government says it supports self-determination, and at the same time, the United States and its allies want access to the raw materials in the colonies. Um, and so the, the liberal internationalism of, of my gang um, and of the United States government in this period is about international involvement, but often for, for economic reasons.
1: So, so let's get into some of the sort of social and cultural history that becomes important context for the story that you're telling. First of all, let's talk about what a male place this journalism establishment was. How did men maintain foreign policy journalism and journalism in general as their own fiefdom? It's crazy um, how well they did it. And it's not just that they were a product
2: of their time. There were plenty of women reporters. These guys knew exactly what they were doing when they would make sure that women could not join their clubs. So one of the things I look at are these. There's the so more traditional elite gentlemen's clubs like Metropolitan Club, which isn't necessarily a journalism club, but someone like um, you know Eugene Meyer who was Catherine Graham's father, and he was, you know, publisher and chair of the Washington Post. He went to the Metropolitan Club almost every single day for lunch um, and, you know, sat at a special table. You know, Walter Lippmann was there all the time. So just this was a place where sort of the more elite of the journalists could could meet. And then there's also the National Press Club, which was much more important at the time than it is now. And that was a place where people could stop in. The re- male reporters could stop in for lunch, go up to the bar, they could trade stories, they could sort of come to understandings, and they made sure that no women were admitted until the 1970s. They also then had these stag banquets. Um, So I think one of the things that really surprised me about this period was that often the default for a social gathering was that it would be a stag party.
1: What stag (sighs) means is male only, like the big male deer. Is a stag. It means no women allowed,
2: men only. And you know the excuse that these men would give is that, oh, if we invite women reporters, we'd have to invite our wives, and you know there's just really not enough space for our wives. This is what they would say. You know they they said this um, about the the White House Correspondents Association dinner. Um, So even though women were a part of the White House Correspondents Association they still could not come to this annual stag banquet. And I've got letters from women who are in the National Press Club writing to the WHCA saying this policy is unfair and we should be allowed to attend this dinner. And I have the letters back saying, oh, hopefully someday we'll be able to, to fit all of you. But in our in our current banquet hall, we really just can't fit in you know, our wives. And so you can't come either. Yes, there's, it's a stag
1: world. Okay, a stag, stag world. So, you also sort of emphasize that this male bonding really occurs during World War II as well. That the New York Times and the Post are sort of loaning people to the government, guys are embedding, you know, they're also working for OWI and so on. There's this sort of tight bond because of shared danger and real fear, I mean, being bombed in London. So can you talk about the, the war experience a little bit that might have helped them sort of rationalize this all-male world?
2: Well, you hit on sort of two of the most important points there. One is that they had this shared um, experience of being in and out of government, sort of this revolving door of war where you would get loaned, as you said, to you know the Office of War Information um where all your buddies in the newspaper were were already hanging out. Or the, the predecessor to the CIA, the OSS, was was a big spot for a lot of these newsmen. These were not always happy associations. It was very frustrating to be part of a war effort. It's frustrating to be part of a government. Um, so it's not that they went in and were suddenly indoctrinated, but they went in and they had these these shared experiences of how tough it was um, to be on on that side, to be on the government side. And then you mentioned especially the Blitz and just the fact that um, war was a really frightening experience and that they experienced some of this fear together. So, you know, we know a lot about kind of the, the homosocial worlds that get created in wartime for people who are in the army. It was no different for these, these men who were reporting on it. Um, and so they sort of had these male worlds in places like London that they then recreated when they when they came home to Washington. Um, and they also bonded. One of the most important relationships in my book is between Scotty Rustin, who I mentioned was the Washington Bureau Chief of the Times, and his publisher, Arthur Hayes Sulzberger. And they really became close because Rustin accompanied Sulzberger on a trip to Russia um, during the war, Sulzberger was um, a publisher who, you know, really wanted to be at the center of things. He sort of fancied himself, you know, at the forefront of internationalism. And Roosevelt had said newspaper publishers cannot go to the front, mostly because he didn't want Henry Luce bothering him going to the front. So Sulzberger said, "Well, I'm not going as a newspaper publisher. I'm going um, with the American Red Cross." And so. He technically was going with the American Red Cross, but of course he took a New York Times reporter with him. Um, and they, they grew really close. It's very difficult um, to travel during wartime. And he sort of became like a, like another son um, to, to Sulzberger.
1: Well, and all these guys had nicknames for each other and sort of private jokes. And I mean, it really, it became a world that had they allowed women to share it, much of what they took pleasure in would have vanished, right? I think so. And I
2: think that's probably one of the reasons that a lot of these clubs lost their importance after the 1970s, after they allowed women in. And then these men sort of then move away from those spaces as the spaces of power. Um, and you're you're right about the nicknames. I'm trying to recreate this world. And so even though I know historians and journalists were not usually supposed to be referring to our characters by their nicknames, but that's how they thought of themselves. It's how they referred to each other. You know, James B. Rustin is is really Scotty Rustin, but everyone would have called him Scotty. And yeah, they all every there's no Wallace ever. It's only ever Wally's. Um, so yeah, yep, lots of lots of nicknames and inside jokes.
1: So I don't want to go too far into this interview without also talking about some of the very important points you make about racial segregation in journalism and the various barriers there were to black newspapers doing the kinds of reporting that institutions like the New York Times, which were entirely white, could do. Can you talk about those barriers a little bit?
2: Absolutely. Um, So yeah, these spaces are all white spaces. There's um, segregation in Washington for most of this period, but then even when there's no longer de jure segregation, there's de facto segregation. And just like there were women reporters in Washington, there of course were Black reporters, male and female, in Washington um, reporting for Black newspapers across the country and then also more locally, um, especially the Baltimore Afro-American and they were not allowed into the spaces of private background reporting, off-the-record reporting. You know, not allowed at something like the Gridiron Club. Not even allowed into this the really big national press club until one very conservative black reporter was let in in 1954, much to the chagrin of many of the members of the press club, um, so that they could say, "Look." We integrated um we let in this one this one black man, and there were these these two um black women reporters that I especially like reading about, and um one of them did not have very nice things to say about this this man who had integrated the press club and um this is Lawrence Laudier. he had also actually integrated the congressional press galleries, which is another space that reporters had kept white reporters had kept black reporters out of. The congressional press galleries stayed segregated until 1947 and only integrated because Congress intervened. And so one of the things I'm seeing with these men is that they are often behind... The times. They are behind the rest of society. They are trying, they're more conservative than we might think they are in terms of trying to keep things the same. The women sometimes write to each other, and I have this one letter where a reporter is saying, you know, the, the real problem here are the are the men reporters. Um, you know, the government would be happy to have us in in some of these spaces if only these these men reporters um, were a little more open-minded. But they weren't, they didn't have to be. It really had then consequences for how they're thinking about foreign policy. So I mentioned earlier the natural resources in the colonies and the former colonies. These are primarily black and brown nations. These are stories you know, about the Marshall Plan, so about the European Recovery Plan, um, in Black newspapers that are pretty critical of it um, and what we would call maybe a leftist view. Those ideas are also then segregated. So the the fact that they're keeping people out of these spaces means they're also uh, making it so that the, the ideas and the information is not flowing in the same way. The 1950s, the Washington Post editor is writing to the publisher saying, we really ought to hire a Black reporter sort of have an obligation to the black community here in Washington, um, which of course is is very vibrant and really important to the Washington community. And he writes back and he says, yes, well, they probably wouldn't have much use out and about reporting for us because they're not going to have access to any of these spaces of reporting. Because I mentioned Washington remains sort of de facto segregated. And so they say, well, maybe we should hire someone internally, maybe someone in our library, you know, maybe we can start a young man out in sports. And they end up failing to hire someone then. They do end up hiring one black reporter in the 1950s who has such a terrible experience there that he leaves them and goes to the Johnson Publishing Company, which is a black-owned company. And then they don't have another black reporter at the Washington Post until the 1970s. Places like the Post, these white newspapers, it's not like they have a blind spot. They know exactly what they should be doing. um, and, And yet they are not making those changes.
1: It's really interesting. And so let's let's get into the down and dirty about race in the journalism profession, the gridiron club. You spend a lot of time on the gridiron club, particularly the big party that they have every year, that they still have every year. First of all, will you tell our listeners why it's called the Gridiron Club? Because I had never known. It's
2: called the Gridiron Club because that's the the like the griddle that you grill chops on. This was something that I also didn't know until very late in writing the book. It's never referenced anywhere. There's a symbol of a gridiron, like of something that looks kind of like a griddle, on all of their information and their papers at the Library of Congress. Um, they're they're really fun and sometimes horrifying, but mostly fun to go through. But yeah, it just it's the plank you cook meat on, as as far as I could figure out.
1: Right. So these are white guys eating steaks. And while they're eating steaks and drinking their bourbon at the annual dinner, what's going on on the stage? So they put on skits
2: and song parodies um, where they would play, you know, important government officials. And um, what I think you're getting at in this particular instance is that they would often have characters in blackface. So this was, you know, common at the time in these types of men's clubs. And they did it well into the 1950s. And it's another one of those instances where they knew enough to be a little uncomfortable about it. So there's this one letter to Scotty Rustin when he gets into the gridiron saying, you know, like, congratulations. And, you know, by the way, we hear you like doing those blackface roles more than any other, but sort of being sarcastic about it because I'm not sure that um, anyone actually liked putting on that blackface. It could be wrong. Um, So there's blackface. And then there's also um, black waiters. So most of the wait staff at most of these hotels in Washington, the segregated hotels, are black. And so just, just trying to picture that whole scene and something that you won't see in the actual pictures. But once you st- step back and think about it a little is the fact that it's all these white men in white tie and tails. So the casual dinner was uh black tie. <laughs> But the, the formal dinner is, is white tie and tails. Um, you know, they're sitting around in white tie and tails and blackface being served by, by black men.
1: Well, and, and one of the points you make early on in the book, which I think is really interesting, is there's this idea among historians that this foreign policy journalism government establishment was all of these guys from Yale who, who knew each other from skull and bones and, you know, had all these pre existing ties. And actually, that's not true. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I think it's a real insight into why they're enjoying the white tie and tails, why they're enjoying the minstrel shows so much.
2: Right. Exactly right. They're not from that world. And I think I also sort of had that image. um, And I think we we have that image because some of the most famous journalists of this time are Joseph Alsop and Walter Lippmann and they sort of did have that the Ivy League pedigree but they were colonists and they're in this world they're in this book but they're not the ones going every day to the state department writing about us foreign policy that's not who you know is is really putting the story out there it's all of these guys mostly from the midwest um, sometimes from other places who often went to land-grant colleges, public universities, maybe didn't go to college at all, and then ended up in Washington, which is sort of the, the pinnacle of where they could be in their career. And they settle in there with their families and enjoy sort of this elite world by, by virtue of being a part of the newspapers that they're a part of. So they, they have this extra social capital that they get by virtue of their importance as reporters, and that they get to enjoy because they are white and male. They sort of have that initial leg up in this world where they're automatically more socially acceptable. So someone like Wally Duell, who was one of my um, one of my favorite characters to, to research um, because he left such detailed notes and such, he wrote a, a letter home to his mom at least once a month. And he wrote really um, vivid details about everything that everyone in his family was doing and everything that he was doing at work. So he um, came from a working class background and was was really uncomfortable a lot of the times with what he was seeing at the gridiron. He actually kept refusing gridiron invitations um, because he did not want to have to rent a white tie and tails. And at the same time, of course, he participated in all the off the record and background dinners that really mattered for his job. Um, so when it really came down to it, even Wally Jewell participated when he when he needed to.
1: I mean, it was really a necessity if you were going to be a working journalist. I mean, you have one character in the book um, whose name perhaps you can remind our our listeners of who's a black woman. And she can't get into the press gallery. She can't get into any of these spaces. So she's writing all of these stories in her room on a typewriter, and she's working like 18 hour days. And all I could think of when I was reading about her is she's kind of like a blogger. She's, you know, she's figured out how to do this job without any access at all. People needed access in the end to be successful at this, right? They do. And so she
2: did have access at least to press conferences. And sorry, this is um, Ethel Payne. Um, the Chicago Defender it Thank took me a second. You. you know, she did have access to White House press conferences and the big State Department press conferences. But you're absolutely right. She didn't have she didn't have an office. Um sh- the Chicago Defender didn't have the money right then for her to have her own office. So as you're saying, she's she's writing her stories in her apartment and then running downtown to to send them, you know, through the post office. And, and is, and is very excluded. And even at um, the larger press conferences is sometimes singled out. So there was this one instance in particular, where Dwight Eisenhower um, sort of came after her in a press conference, because she was she was asking questions um, about you know racial injustice in in America, which was just you know not not done at Eisenhower's press conferences, um, and they threatened to hit uh, Jim Haggerty, Eisenhower's press chief, um, threatened to to revoke her credentials, and so you really had to toe the line if you wanted to keep your access. And then of course her access already isn't isn't that great. Um, there is a club for black reporters in the Capitol called the Capitol Press Club, founded in the '40s. They do their own, you know, off the record and background lunches, but it's much smaller and it's sort of excluded from those those more mainstream um, press clubs that the white newspapers are so dependent on.
1: But these white male journalists not only don't think they're doing anything wrong, even though, as you're saying, they're aware of the situation, they're aware of what they're perpetuating, but they think they have a higher responsibility here, which is to keep the world safe, not only for democracy, but to keep it safe from nuclear destruction. So so what role are they playing with politicians to ensure that the United States will not get involved in a nuclear conflict?
2: I think they see one of their jobs as trying to make John Foster Dulles sound more reasonable, than he actually was, um, or you know, to cover up some of his faux pas. Um, so Dulles was, you know, Secretary of State for Eisenhower for almost the entire Eisenhower administration, and his, you know, kind of bad relationship with the press. Actually, they they often resented him. Was one of the reasons there was this breakdown of trust in the nineteen fifties. And yet, they were always trying to cover for him. Um, if Dulles said something at an off the record or a background dinner that they thought um, might hurt peace negotiations, for instance, um, with Russia. They wouldn't put it in the paper. There's this one instance, though, where there's a leak at one of these dinners. It does get into the paper. It's a big brouhaha. People get punished. But but they really see their job as not printing anything that could um, hurt uh, their relationship with with France or Great Britain um, or hurt the possibility of, of peace with the Soviet Union. Um, so they they really try to limit what they're putting into the paper and be responsible about it. This was one of the words of the day, response, being a responsible reporter. It's really what they saw their job as. And you mentioned that they don't think they're doing anything wrong. And I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, I think they they sometimes do know what they're doing is wrong. And they say, like, you know, I know I'm not being objective, but I got to keep this guy as one of my sources. Right. So they're very practical about their jobs. Um, they want to keep their jobs. Um, and and of, and of course, they sometimes, you know, they talk about how they need to write profiles to, as a way of uh, accumulating sources. And they know that that's not great from a journalism ethics standpoint, but that's also um, how they can do their job and how they can serve their readers. Um, so they, they still have that in the back of their mind, is how can I serve my readers? But at the forefront of their minds, as you said, is how can I not be responsible for World War Three? So World War II had come so close on the heels of World War One. Most of them had been alive for both of them. They fully expected World War Three was just around the corner. Um, a lot of fear, you know, driving driving their behavior, and not unreasonably so.
1: One of the things that was interesting to me too that I had not understood before reading your book is that on one level the backgrounders were necessary they needed to know the whole truth so that they could decide what story to tell the american public is that right
2: that that is right they they didn't just want to repeat the government line you know they really didn't see themselves as stenographers they sort of felt like yeah right they should have the whole story and then they can decide what to tell um the american people and this was something that the new york times especially thought was important because even you know even then they were sort of the most influential newspaper they would give the lead to a lot of other newspapers um you know other newspapers around the country would see what's on the front page of the first edition of the times that's what we need to have on the front page of ours so the the publisher of the times especially um was extremely you know cautious in his relationship with government officials and and thought that um hit, hit the decisions that he made about what went in the paper or was withheld, were were really important.
1: So that's actually also, if I understand it correctly, how the relationship between journalists and government starts to break down toward the end of the 1950s, particularly around the Cuban Missile Crisis, because the journalists are doing what they're supposed to do. They're doing what they've always done, and yet they begin to understand that the government is lying to them they always knew the government was lying to them
2: but they but other people they didn't ha- their readers didn't know that they knew um and so you know after the cuban missile crisis they sort of talk about there's this you know the cat's out of the bag and now reporters can no longer cover for the government because now everyone knows that the government lies um so something like the um, you know the u2 airplane that got shot down with Gary Powers in it, and the, you know, the White House says, oh, it's a, it's a weather balloon or something. And of course, all of, all of my guys and anyone who had any sense at all you know, knew that it was a spy that had crossed into enemy territory and wasn't supposed to, um, knew it was a spy plane. But of course, they didn't write that. They, they wrote what the government told them to write, not because they trusted the government, but because they, they thought that was the right thing to do for the peace. There's this one um, memoir that I mentioned in the book of a New York Times writer who looks back on that U2 incident and says, oh, that's when the veil was lifted. And for the last time, you know, that was when reporters knew better than to trust the government when we found out that that actually was a false cover story. And I don't think that's right. I think that at the time they knew it was false. Um, you know, I have background memos where they talk about these um, these spy planes and so right I think they weren't nearly as naive as they later sometimes pretended to be when they were you know sort of trying to make it seem like they knew less about a lot of the CIA covert operations going on especially in the 1950s than they did. They knew what was going on in Guatemala. They they wrote, you know, endless memos, you know, talking about how they should be covering the coup and how much they should put in writing memos about the fact that the CIA wanted them to plant information. This was with the Times and the Times refusing to do that. And the Times basically saying, if the CIA wants to lie on the record, we'll put it into the paper, even if we know they're lying. Um, what we won't do is lie for them so that it looks like we are lying. And so this it just created um, a lot of problems between these newspapers and, and the government. And then, of course, one of the most famous stories is the um, Bay of Pigs invasion, because it got remembered wrong for many years. So for many years, the story was um, the New York Times had the story of the invasion and they pulled it to be patriotic. And if only they had run it, you know, maybe Kennedy would have wouldn't have gone in and would have been spared the, the failure. Um, but the Times did run it. They, they spoke with um you know Alan Dulles at the CIA. They spoke with the White House. They decided to take out the name of the CIA and they also took out the actual date that it was happening. but they reported then and they had reported months before on the fact that um, the United States government was training Cuban. Rebels in Guatemala to go topple Castro. Um, so this was not some big secret, and they were they were publishing it. They changed the way that they were displaying the story, um, but they they ran the story and then really resented the fact that Kennedy was publicly blaming them for this. And they also through private channels, The Times was trying to warn the Kennedy administration that this was a mistake to go through with this. They wanted their reporters on the ground in Cuba. Herb Matthews, who you know had a reputation for maybe being too close to Castro, so maybe this wasn't someone they really trusted. But you know he writes the Times and and says you know they need to know that this is a terrible idea, and the publisher says oh my goodness we can't sit on this information. I'm going to have Scotty Rustin meet with the Secretary of State. They do, and then they still get blamed for it. And when the publisher son-in-law goes and meets Orville Dreyfus, Arthur Hazelsberger's son-in-law goes and meets with Kennedy. Um, you know, in the White House off the record, he says, you know, you you can't keep blaming us. You know, we we warned you.
1: So it seems like, you know, as historians, you and I study change over time. And part of what changes in this period is that the interests of the journalism establishment and the political establishment really start to diverge because the journalism establishment sees it as in the interests of the world, to have peace, whereas the U.S. government is intervening everywhere and walking this razor's edge around hot war and cold war. So it seems to me you're really kind of changing what we know about the 1960s, too. Um, Certainly in my work, I saw this new generation of countercultural guys who grew up reading Izzy Stone's Weekly saying, I want to be Izzy Stone. I don't want to be Scotty Reston. But there's so there's a much bigger story here of divergence, right? I think that's right. Because you know, Walter Lippmann,
2: who was seen as the insider's insider, was also against the Vietnam War. The yes, the interests changed, and the interests of these, the liberal internationalists who were really focused on Western Europe, um, don't understand why we need to be in Vietnam. And so if the story of the 60s is the, the story of um, you know, government press breakdown around around Vietnam, then that story now sort of makes sense when you think about the fact that they were more supportive of something like NATO. Like NATO is exactly the kind of policy they want. They think sort of a, a more militarized Western Europe is going to be helpful to the United States and to Western Europe. Um, and then that is, that is not the case with Vietnam.
1: So, Catherine, I want to ask you an important question for our listeners, which is, why should they read your book now? I think we have
2: totally the wrong story right now about the press and maybe the good old days, I think, is maybe how a lot of people think of it, where, you know, like back when you could trust reporters – I think reporters are probably plenty trustworthy now and sort of trustworthy then. But what whatever you think of them, they're not somehow totally different, you know, creatures. They're not totally different. Being, they're they were doing their job then. They're doing their job now. Um, this is a for-profit industry. And, you know, there's certain expectations that we have of of newspapers that I think are unreasonable where we think that they are the saviors of democracy when we really need to remember that, Yes, they're giving us the information we need, and also they are for-profit companies, and they're trying to keep their jobs, and they're trying to keep their readers, and we need to keep our expectations intact at the same time that we remember that um, it didn't used to be perfect, and there never, of course, was a golden age.
1: And that's it for today's show. You can go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes and to listen to more episodes, leave a comment, or ask a question. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, which gets you one newsletter a week that may or may not include a podcast. Or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. You can also participate in subscriber chats. You can subscribe to Why Now on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Please share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. Show notes, technical assistance, and research are by Emma Kern. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. You can find both of these terrific artists on soundstripe.com. That's all for now. I'll see you next time.